Welcome to the next exciting episode of Pulp Today. Pause while I take a drink. Red wine seemed uh, appropriate for today's book, which has uh, some Christian religious themes. The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. There are, uh, <laughs> there are books that I've hesitated to talk about on this show because I almost don't feel qualified, and this is uh, one of them. Uh, it's from 1908, Chesterton famously a, a, a man of uh, religious conviction, yet it is a spy novel and a uh, work of surrealism and a huge influence in pretty much every spy conspiracy thing you've ever read your entire life or seen or experienced. Huge influence on Kafka. There's a, there's a comment in a William Burroughs interview that I've been trying to track down for years, and if anybody watches this and can find me the interview. But he talks about, and this is in the 60s, probably at the height of the James Bond craze, he talks about how, of course, the secret agent is the most popular figure in fiction in the 20th century, because in the 20th century modern man, we're all living some kind of lie or another. We're all pretending to be something we're not. I've talked about this before in the episode on... Uh, Vonnegut's Mother Night. But this book is very much about that. Uh, it's about a poet named Gabriel Syme who is recruited to the secret anti-anarchist police. And this is at a time, uh, again, 1908, political unheaval, anarchy was sort of the, how the word terrorist lands on someone's ears today is how the word anarchist would land on someone's ears in 1908. Uh, in the following scene, uh, Gabriel Syme has been recruited for the, is, be, is in the middle of being recruited for these police. Uh, and he's talking to a policeman who is not named. And the policeman says, I don't know what you're doing, but you're wasting your life. You must, you shall join our special army against anarchy. Their armies are on our frontiers. Their bolt is ready to fall. A moment more, and you may lose the glory of working with us, perhaps the glory of dying with the last heroes of the world. It's a chance not to be missed, certainly, assented Syme. But I still do not quite understand. I know as well as anybody that the modern world is full of lawless little men and mad little movements. But beastly as they are, they generally have the one merit of disagreeing with each other. How can you talk of their leading one army or hurling one bolt? What is this anarchy? Do not confuse it, replied the constable, with those chance dynamite outbreaks from Russia or from Ireland, which are really the outbreaks of oppressed, if mistaken, men. This is a vast philosophic movement, consisting of an outer and an inner ring. You might even call the outer ring the laity and the inner ring the priesthood. I prefer to call the outer ring the innocent section, the inner ring the supremely guilty section. The outer ring, the main mass of their supporters, are merely anarchists, that is, men who believe that rules and formulas have destroyed human happiness. They believe that all e the evil results of human crime are the results of the system that has called it crime. They do not believe that the crime creates the punishment. They believe that the punishment has created the crime. They believe that if a man seduced seven women, he would naturally walk away as blameless as the flowers of spring. They believe that if a man picked a pocket, he would naturally feel exquisitely good. 
those I call the innocent section. Oh, exclaimed Syme. Naturally, therefore, these people talk about a happy time coming, the paradise of the future, mankind freed from the bondage of vice and the bondage of virtue, and so on. And so also the men of the inner circle speak, the sacred priesthood. They also speak to applauding crowds of the happiness of the future, of mankind freed at last. But in their mouths, and the policeman lowered his voice, in their mouths these happy phrases have a horrible meaning. They are under no illusions. They are too intellectual to think that man upon this earth can ever be quite free of original sin and the struggle, and they mean death. When they say that mankind shall be free at last, they mean that mankind shall commit suicide. When they talk of paradise without right or wrong, they mean the grave. They have but two objects, to destroy first humanity and then themselves. This is why they throw bombs instead of firing pistols. The innocent rank and file are disappointed because the bomb has not killed the king. But the high priesthood are happy because it has killed somebody. How can I join you? asked Syme with a sort of passion. I know for a fact that there is a vacancy at the moment, said the policeman, as I have the honor to be somewhat in the confidence of the chief of whom I have spoken. You should really come and see him, or rather, you should not say see him, nobody ever sees him, but you can talk to him if you like. Telephone? inquired Syme with interest. No, said the policeman placidly. He has a fancy for always sitting in a pitch-dark room. He says it makes his thoughts brighter. Do come along. Somewhat dazed and considerably excited, Syme allowed himself to be led to a side door in the long row of buildings of Scotland Yard. Almost before he knew what he was doing, he had been passed through the hands of about four intermediate officials and was suddenly shown into a room, the abrupt blackness of which startled him like a blaze of light. It was not the ordinary darkness in which forms can be faintly traced. It was like suddenly going stone blind. Are you the new recruit? asked a heavy voice. And in some strange way, though there was not the shadow of a shape in the room, Syme knew two things. First, that it came from a man of massive stature. And second, that the man had his back to him. Are you the new recruit? said the invisible chief, who seemed to have heard all about it. All right, you're engaged. Syme, quite swept off his feet, made a feeble fight against this irrevocable phrase. I, I really have no experience, he began. No one has any experience, said the other, of the Battle of Armageddon. But I'm really unfit. You are willing. That is enough. Well, really, said Syme, I don't know any profession of which mere willingness is the final test. I do, said the other. Martyrs, I am condemning you to death. Good day. Thus it was when Gabriel Syme came out again into the crimson light of evening in his shabby black hat and shabby lawless cloak. He came out a member of the new detective corps for the frustration of the great conspiracy. Acting under the advice of his friend the policeman, who was professionally inclined to politeness, he trimmed his hair and beard, bought a good hat, clad himself in exquisite summer suit of light blue-gray, with a pale yellow flower in the buttonhole, and in short became that elegant and rather unsupportable person whom Gregory had first encountered in the little garden of Saffron Park. Before he finally left the police premises, his friend provided him with a small blue card on which was written The Last Crusade, and a number, the sign of his official authority. He put this carefully in his upper waistcoat pocket, lit a cigarette, 
and went forth to track and fight the enemy in all the drawing rooms of London. Where his adventure ultimately led him, we have already seen. At about half-past one on February night, he found himself steaming in a small tug of the silent Thames, armed with sword stick and revolver, the duly elected Thursday of the Central Council of Anarchists. When Syme stepped out into the steam tug, he had a singular sensation of stepping out into something entirely new, not merely the landscape of a new land, but even into the landscape of a new planet. This was mainly due to the insane yet solid decision of that evening, though partly also to an entire change in the weather and the sky since he entered the little tavern some two hours before. Every trace of the passionate plumage of the cloudy sunset had been swept away, and a naked moon stood in the naked sky. The moon was so strong and full that, by paradox often to be noticed, it seemed like a weaker sun. It gave not the sense of bright moonshine, but rather of dead daylight. Over the whole landscape lay a luminous and unnatural discoloration, as of that disastrous twilight which Milton spoke of as shed by the sun in eclipse so that Syme fell easily into his first thought, that he was actually on some other and emptier planet which circled around some sadder star. But the more he felt this glittering desolation in the moonlit land, the more his own chivalric folly glowed in the night like a great fire. Even the common things he carried with him, the food and the brandy and the loaded pistol, just took on exactly that concrete and material poetry which a child feels when he takes a gun upon a journey or a bun with him to bed. The sword stick and the brandy flask, though in themselves only the tools of morbid conspirators, became the expressions of his own more healthy romance. The sword stick became almost the sword of chivalry, and the brandy the wine of the stirrup cup. For even the most dehumanized modern fantasies depend on some older and simpler figure. The adventures may be mad, but the adventurer must be sane. The dragon, without St. George, would not even be a grotesque. So this inhuman landscape was only imaginative by the presence of a man really human. To Syme's exaggerative mind, the bright, bleak houses and terraces of the Thames looked as empty as the mountains of the moon. But even the moon is only poetical because there is a man in the moon. <laughs> I... That's some fantastic writing. Uh, I am obsessed with... The adventurers may be mad, but the adventurer must be sane. That is a... Th those are words to live by. And I think a defining quality in a certain kind of work. You can trace the man who was Thursday through Kafka, through James Bond. Uh, the prisoner feels a lot like the man who was Thursday. By the way, the title refers to the fact that the Council of Anarchists is seven men, all named after the days of the week, their leader being the mysterious Sunday. And uh, what came before that scene, uh, which is essentially a flashback within the novel, is Syme getting himself elected to the vacant seat on the Council of Days, the Anarchist Council. One of the reasons I've been reluctant to talk about this book is the twists are so good and I want to preserve the experience for you of reading them and getting to them by yourself. But I can draw a line between them and Vonnegut's later Mother Night in the idea and in Burroughs' idea that we're all secret agents of, if you're pretending to be someone, who's everyone else? 
What are they pretending to be? Should you also take them at face value? And our hero is a poet pretending to be a secret agent, pretending to be an anarchist. So who are the other anarchists? Those are your questions. I read the book about once a year and always find inspiration from it. And uh, I think you should give it a read. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode of Pulp Today. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.